Welcome back to Modern Commerce. I'm your host, Doug Barnett. I am here with my co-host, Brant Choate. What's up? We have a an exciting podcast today. We are one week away from what I what I consider to be the worst month of the year, which is February. It's like the days are still short, the days are still cold, but the long winter is coming to an end. We're getting close, Brant. I thought you were going to say that because the quality of games in the NBA seems to tick way down <laughs> for all of February. Well, what what is ticking up for this podcast is the fact that we are going to talk about the NBA for the first time, which is one of Brant and I's true loves in life. <laughs> so that's uh, a nice... A nice little change for modern commerce. But before we get into that, we want to talk about some other things that are happening in tech. We're going to start with talking about Meta because it seems like in tech, you're only allowed to talk like about five companies. Um, That's true. Even we were saying this the other day, um, you know, we went through Y Combinator um, with Remy. And it's funny, they still talk about Airbnb pretty much every day. Yep. And there's been loads of very, very successful startups. Hundreds. Hundreds of successful startups that they could reference. They could talk about the go-to-market motion. They could tell the funny anecdotes, the the memorable moments. But they just can't stop talking about Airbnb. Airbnb and Twitch. Yeah. <laughs> Those are the, and I guess Michael's still there. Michael Seibel is still there. So Twitch makes sense. Yeah. It's his own experience. But, man, they do have a love affair with Airbnb, which, of course, they're a great company. But So we're going to talk about Meta. Um and of course, tech layoffs, which seem to be happening everywhere. Yep. I thought Ben Thompson had some interesting analysis today about the tech layoffs, which is basically that this is not top grading. Mm-hmm. This is not um, accounting for overhiring in the pandemic, but actually, this is for accounting for a a lesser degree of attrition than they are used to because of the job market tightening around them. And that is the reason that these layoffs has happened is because the attrition has not been as much as they're used to. And so the hiring plans didn't really change much. And that has changed the essential profile of how many people stay have stayed employed at the tech companies, which I thought was very, very interesting analysis that I have not heard yet. Um, but specifically, what's interesting about the meta layoffs that we want to touch on here, and Brent, you can chime in on that um, note from Ben Thompson here in a second if you'd like. Yep. Um, is kind of how they approached these layoffs. Um, I think, you know, on my LinkedIn feed, I've seen a lot of the people laid off from Google recently in a fairly robotic manner. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've heard about the Twitter layoffs in a very similar fashion, which, you know, it, with Elon at the helm, none of that is surprising, mm-hmm. if I'm being honest. Uh, at Meta, essentially what they've done here is they created a performance rating schism, if you will, where uh, from meets ex- some expectations to meets most, meets all, exceeds, greatly exceeds, and redefines expectations at the very, very top. In the past, meets all expectations at Facebook was you were now very much in control of your future at, at, at Meta, and you didn't have a lot to worry about. But that changed culturally over the last um, round of um, performance ratings. The other, things, the other thing that changed is they moved from two ver- two ratings per year to a single review process per year, um, which I've been through. I mean, 
Bivin is not as large as Meta, nor near as large, but has a very similar type um, review system. Yep. I could give you my feedback on. And kind of what it's doing to, you know, the culture of Meta, how it's impacting their culture as a company, how their employees are feeling about it, the anxiety and stress that comes along with it. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think um, there's there's sort of like a cynical take on this, which is essentially that they're looking to basically have flexibility to, to have an excuse to fire more people in the future, which I don't know, it seems like it is probably part of it or maybe all of it. Um, but it also just feels like all these companies are really coming to grips with the fact that the philosophy of just accumulate talent without any concern as to like how you're actually going to use them doesn't really work um, either in like today's market or when you're a certain size company. I'm not exactly sure, you know, how they're all thinking about that dynamic, but it does feel like that's starting to shift um, because there once was a time when, you know, all of these companies really that are kind of like at the top, so to speak, could just go out and really it's like oh here's like the best person in the world at um i don't know creating like satellites for the internet or whatever i mean just random things that weren't even really directly related to the business and they the the line of thinking was more or less well some of our best products have come because we let our employees kind of wander and do whatever they want and that's where gmail came from and some of these other things and so they kind of like almost built the company up by some of the exceptions that happened um, about uh, out of the company. And I don't know, I think that that can work for some time, but it's, it's, it just feels like there's like when times get tough, all that stuff gets cut. I have a very uh, hot take about this. Really? I do. Maybe it's not a hot take, but I think most people won't like what I have to say. I think this is so much better for everyone involved. Um, and I don't mean that people affected by layoffs. I'm not, I'm not open to um, understanding the, the plight that they're going through, which is a very difficult time. But I believe they'll get through that. Um, and, but when companies get fat and happy and employees get fat and happy, almost nothing good happens yeah. on both sides of the equation. And for both of the company side and the employee side, to feel a little bit of anxiety, like we have to perform mm -hmm. on both sides. And I, I, mean this, I mean this in a very literal sense. There was a time where it was very difficult for smaller companies that were not FANG companies to recruit really great people because their compensation packages were crazy. It was very difficult to compete in the marketplace. Well, now, if you introduce some of this anxiety about at the company level, Employees are going to be like, wait, wait a minute. First of all, it's not the greatest thing since sliced bread at all times to work at one of these companies. And then the second thing is companies or employees are going to go, wait a minute. Well, you're doing evaluations. I don't like X, Y, and Z that you've done culturally. I'm going to go work for this other company that maybe didn't have a chance to hire me before, but does now. And I think everything gets lifted. Mm-hmm. It, it actually, thinking about it, it seems almost the same pattern that countries go through in like the geopolitical sphere. Like 
the whole kind of focus of the recent Ray Dalio book was basically around kind of like the changing world order and the patterns that happen through a country. And so he goes through the whole history of China and he goes through the history of like Britain before they kind of like lost their status as the being the reserve currency. He went through the Dutch and it's the same thing in every case. And more or less like, you know, the fat and happy situation pops up. Turns out it's like actually very hard to manufacture the same amount of motivation as when you're like the underdog. Um, and I think that like this, the, the, the same things kind of happen in these companies, maybe on like a smaller time horizon. And it's probably also like another way of saying, um, you know, dealing with the innovators dilemma and all those types of things. Like if you're really talented and you get inside of Google and you have to try and figure out how to like feel like you're contributing, like it's just not going to feel the same as if you're a startup. And so you lose people that kind of have like the innovative ideas and striking that balance is, is really tricky. But um, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, it doesn't seem like there's a, way to cut around just like the pattern of of human behavior that tends to emerge over time and that's that like if you don't have like a real actual reason the manufactured ones don't stick for quite as long i can even apply this uh to something that's happened to, to my own personal situation in my families over the last 12 months where i was in a very comfortable job doing very well and we got fat and happy <laughs> like we started stopped paying attention to you know a lot of the details that you have to as a like as a normal young professional financially you stopped paying attention to you know how much money you were spending here 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 and then when you come to work at a startup it's like jumping into a ice cold bath and <laughs> like the reality is like whoa and it it really does wake you up. And it's actually, I think, a very healthy process to go through. And so this is why I know it's difficult in the moment. But, I, you know, to be honest, life is hard. And there's always something to, that's going to be hard no matter what. And I think that this process for individuals that go through a layoff and companies that are having to do layoffs, I, I've been someone that's had to actually do a layoff. It is the least fun thing in the world. And as a company, you want to do everything in your power once you go through that experience to never have to do it again. And I think there are some healthy things that come out of of these things. So, yep. uh, um, now to to the the point culturally that there are going to be essentially things that happen to your company culture because you've had to do layoffs. There are things that are here that we can talk about as far as like tracking performance, happiness, um, satisfaction. I have gone through review processes that are very formalized. Um, we went through a nine box exercise at Vivint. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, you essentially, which is a stack ranking exercise. Yep. Um, we, that was the determinant as far as, who was going to get promoted. Um, and if you as a manager did a poor job of lining up your nine box to actually the results that your group was, was creating, that was a very, very bad sign um, for you as a leader. So there was some interesting stuff and dynamics that would happen there. 
I'd love to hear kind of your thoughts about if you've seen a very good example of this or or if you've seen the negative um, implications from having a very formalized process or what happens when you don't have any process. All those types of things would be interesting. Yeah, I think it's no different than any model. Um, even if you just look at like economics as a, as a similar sort of way of measuring things in the world, measuring value, there's a million ways in which it gets it wrong. Um, and I think anytime you introduce any type of model for performance into an organization, there are very obvious ways in which it doesn't like hold. And so you're trying to find one that, you know, makes the most amount of sense. Um, I think that the ways where I've seen it done the best are where the, the leaders essentially pick the, the right kind of, I don't know, let's say like two or three things to really dial into. And they're actually diligent about proactively rewarding those things. And it lines up. I think the worst case scenario is where you have models put forward and then behaviors that are rewarded differently. And it's that's never happened. Never. Nope. Can't think of a single example of that. (laughs) (laughs) What are you talking about, Brant? Um, but I don't know. I can't decide what's worse if it's that or just having nothing at all. Um, I can tell you having worked in a lot of startups scenarios and startups have had high growth. There are, there's some amount of, um, negative view around stuff like this. Cause it's like, Oh, that's what big companies. Do. Yeah. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I heard the that anti big company yeah. stance. Oh, that's a big company stuff. Okay. Yeah. Well, the problem that I saw with having nothing is that it just leads to like this nonverbal implicit version of some type of performance measurement. Yep. And I think that if that's the case, um, it leads too many areas open for people to, to basically kind of like get away with bad behavior or, or certain people to be rewarded significantly more than everyone else thinks. And, the downstream effects, I think, were pretty catastrophic in, in what I saw. Um, and it's it's a little harder to undo that the further down the, you know, kind of cultural evolution of a company that you get. So to me, it seems reasonable, you know, okay, if you're a startup, you don't want to try and figure out the same type of like nine stack thing that you're talking about and all that kind of rigor and even looking at a company like Lattice, it feels a little heavy handed for like a smaller company. Yeah. Like there's probably a way to do this in like a lightweight way, but it's saying, Hey, we're still going to put some time and attention into it. Um, but then just kind of like adapting gradually as you, as you move up and start going from like nothing to all of a sudden, like we're going to bring in a HBS driven performance management like consultant, whatever, and they're going to try and like institute this system from nothing seems pretty catastrophic. And I don't know what it was at Facebook um, prior to this, like how much of this is really that different or new, or they're just shifting the scale or whatever, but it does feel kind of like they're having to wrestle with the fact that they have had like losing quarters for the first time. They're kind of like losing in the grander scheme of things for the first time. And then just like the implication of not having the, umbrella of winning over top of them from the whole time they've been a company. What a crazy experience to have. Yeah. Okay. I want to take away from 
maybe big company stuff. Meta is like huge, but even I want to go down to small company dynamics on actually how you can make a difference here. We talked about this a little bit on last week's episode where we talked about the most important thing in in finding a founder partner was just fit. Mm-hmm. Like finding something that finding someone where things were would happen naturally and easily. Yeah. I think the first step at a very small company, talking like sub 20 employees, 25 employees, just you have to just essentially you have to be very hands-on and hire correctly. That's the I think the right solution. But then I also think there's examples of companies that are building in public that are doing interesting things here from an operating model that change the way that you think about the review and performance model. So there's a company that um, is another YC company, startup, we're a customer of theirs. They do um, app analytics, product analytics called PostHog. We may have talked yeah, about PostHog yeah. on this pod before, but essentially the way that then you, what's interesting about PostHog is if you want to learn about PostHog, the company and how they think about company building, go to posthog.com. It's all there. Yeah. Um, and I remember the first time that Brant introduced me to PostHog. He was like, yeah, I was up to like 3 a.m. <laughs> reading everything about PostHog. There's a, there's, a, there's a window into the mind of Brant Choate. <laughs> um, and then I actually kind of did the same thing. Um, it's very, very interesting the, the way that they're approaching. I really commend them on. They've taken a lot of best practice, pr- best practices from a lot of really cool companies, and they're building the company they want to build. And the foundation of that is they believe in operating as small teams and where teams max at, what do you think, seven people? Yeah, I think maybe five. Like four or five. Yeah, yeah. today, but I think there would be room to grow. And I think Stripe has some of this. We've read um, some of how Stripe operates in these smaller teams. Um, And basically these small teams are in charge of every piece of the deployment everything from go to market to product and engineering to customer service to performance all those things and it basically makes it so that an engineer can't point at a salesperson and say well you didn't hit the number and the salesperson can't point at the engineer and say well the product doesn't work basically there's nowhere to go there's nowhere to hide so that's interesting to me as we think about the re- the review and the performance process so I wonder if there's a version of this where reviews and performance don't necessarily correlate to companies because the operating model already sifts the way that it needs to sift without a review and performance program. What do you think? Hmm. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, I think it's easy to reason, not easy, but it's simpler to reason through with a startup or even yeah. up to, to a certain to scale, 500 maybe. people, even like you can kind of dial that in. If you spend enough time, I don't even like it. It's really where I've grown to appreciate certain executives like Bob Iger a lot more than I ever would have earlier in my career, because to think about how you move, you know, a hundred thousand people, I don't know how many are Disney that like, I don't know. It's probably, yeah, it's, probably it's a that. huge company, huge number. You have to figure out how to get people to dial into principles. And 
kind of like like mission driven. Yeah. You're 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 kind of trying to dial down um how people dictate most of their actions based off of like a couple of paragraphs more or less. Like whatever can kind of stick in their head and it's like, okay, I know this is like how we do things here. Yep. And hopefully those things you've like communicated in the right way and you've done it in a way where people actually like value them and think that they're real and they're rewarded and all that type of stuff. Um, so it does seem though that, that like if you have the certain leader that it trickles down like pretty quickly, like if, if you just back to Bob Iger, reading his like autobiography really kind of stuck out to me because there was very clear things that he came in and did as soon as he took over the company, um, from who was the guy before him? Uh, um, I can see his face. Is his name Bob Eisner? Uh, Eisner, Michael Eisner. Yeah. So he came in and did some things and, and like there was changes that were, that were happening that people start started to feel within like the first week or two. And like, you know, if you think about the fact that like the CEO can meet with his team or her team and deliver a message and convey like, this is how things are going to be and this is how we do things here. And the message really gets across and then they sit down with their team, their team, their team. Like you can kind of go all the way down a chain of a company. I don't know, within the course of a week, like, yep. And if you, if you give the, like the message in the right way and the principle resonates for whatever reason, like you can kind of like shift the whole direction of a company because it gives people the ability to think and go make their own decisions and interpret it in the right way. But if you have to figure out the right way to go actually interpret it all the way down to the most low level employee, it gets real tough. I think at those company sizes. And so I don't know. It, part of like meta, I wonder, and some of these other companies, it's like, is that what's actually happening? Like, or, you know, has Mark sort of like lost the ability to do that at this stage of the company? Is he tired? Is it just not connecting for whatever reason? Not a focus. You're just like in it for too long. Like, I, I mean, that's kind of where my head goes with some of this stuff. It is, I think, first, I have so much empathy for the leaders that are doing this stuff. It's so much, it looks so much easier from the outside than it is when you're actually, um, as LeBron James puts on his shoes, the man in the arena, Yeah, that poem. Mm -hmm. It's much harder. It's so much easier when you're sitting in the stands than when you're actually on the floor. Yep. And um, at every stage, I can't, I think it was you who introduced this to me, but basically someone wrote a framework that they believed on a multiple of three um, that they would need to change their operating model. Maybe it was Elad Gill. I can't remember. But basically, when your company is three people, something works. Yep. And then when it gets to 30, it's going to break. Mm -hmm. And you've got to change the operating model. Yep. And that's going to work for a while until you get to 300 people. And that's not going to work anymore. And you're going to have to redesign it from scratch. And then when you get to 3,000 people, you're going to have to change it again. I can't even imagine how much you would have to change the way you think when you're going through over a period of three years, five years, mm -hmm. from three employees to 3,000 employees or 30,000 or 300,000. Yeah. I mean, I, like I, I lived some version of this. Yep. Basically, I was, I was like, I don't know, around the 10th employee and then we went up to four or 500 by the time I left and that was like three years. And 
what was interesting is if you take something as simple as we as product and engineering build a thing and then everyone else in the company kind of like operates around this thing that we build, whether that's sales that needs to sell it or support that needs to like take tickets in, phone calls, explain things, whatever. It was real simple, like up until probably, I don't know, like let's say 30 people mm-hmm. where we're just building new things and we're just shipping it as we get it done. Everybody talks to each other. And like, we're not spending much time at all explaining as to like what's going on. It's like very obvious. High context for everyone involved. Yeah. Yep. And there got to be this certain point where I would, I had a habit like running product where I'd walk around the sales floor and just kind of talk to people. And that's like, I'd spend like, you know, the good chunk of my the first part of my day, just kind of like touching base with people. What are you hearing? What's going on? Blah, blah, blah. And I started to realize that like portions of the company had no idea what was happening, what was being added to the product. And they're like, oh, I couldn't close this deal because I didn't have this feature. I'm like, we shipped that like three weeks ago. What do you mean? And they're like, oh, I had no idea. Was that shocking the first time that happened? I, I mean, uh, not like completely shocking, but it, it, yeah, it was like, whoa, okay. We have to change. We have to change. Yeah. yeah. And so... That was like the first kind of point where we're like, oh, product marketing has to be a thing. And like product marketing's job is now going to be this person who's going to make sure that we have like well-defined releases and like explain what everything does, why we did it, all the like context sharing. And um, that even evolved quite a bit. Like once we got to like a couple hundred people, because then we had to have someone do that just for sales. Oh, now we have all this sales material all the way we've been selling it. And every time we add a feature, all of their like decks and all their videos they use and all those things like get out of date. So there's this like distribution of content that just becomes like real onerous every time we add something new. And so, yeah, I think what you said, I definitely have seen play out, you know, at a smaller scale in Disney, but I, I can imagine it just gets worse. I know this is a very, also very unpopular take, but, I have a lot of empathy for the people that had to do the layoffs. Um, you don't make perfect decisions in business. I wish you did it. You just don't. And you never have like a crystal ball. It's very impossible to see everything in the future. And there's very, as I see on sit on social media, there's very, very little empathy for, you know, poor choices that are made at the executive level. And in some situations, I think that criticism is fair because there's also very low repercussions for those decisions and they're affecting real people. So, um, okay, let's, I want to pivot away from this topic into what Brent and I talk about all the time at at lunch, which is the (laughs) NBA. Um, however, um, this is Joe Pompliano. His brother Pomp, um, is a, is a, um, very popular kind of probably has, has a very popular podcast um, I stopped following him for a, a while ago, but his brother talks about the business of sports. This particular um, substack is called The NBA's Bright and Lucrative Future. And he starts the, the kind of discussion by mentioning a quote from Mark Cuban in 2014, where Mark said, pigs get fat, hogs get slaughtered, in reference to the NFL And I think I actually remember this moment when Mark gave this quote, and he doesn't talk about this in the article, but what he was referencing at this time 
was that the NFL was expanding to Thursdays. Mm-hmm. Well, what's what's a key night in the NBA? Thursday, Thursday nights. That's the TNT night. Mm-hmm. And he was upset that the NFL was kind of essentially encroaching on their real estate. And he's saying, like, you're you're doing the wrong things. You are getting too fat. And it's actually really difficult to say that Mark was right. And and um, you know, Joe Joe walks through some of this of the two hundred most watched TV programs in two thousand twenty one. Over the last two years, not just last year, 157 of them were NBA ga- or NFL games. Of the remaining 43, zero were professional sports. That is crazy. Yeah. The reach and profitability of the NFL is unlike any other sports, sports league. But then Joe goes on to say, but actually, if you were to ask me, what is the, what is the sports entity? F1. MLS, the Premier League, the NFL, anything, any, I'm sure there's a big cricket league in India that I don't, I don't know the name of. I'm sure it's huge and very profitable. What is the number one sports franchise that he believes is going to, has, that has the brightest future and what, what type of team would he buy? He picks the NBA. Let's just start there. Do you agree with him? This is including soccer. It includes, he says he brings up the Premier League. Oh yeah. It feels tough to it. It feels tough that it's going to beat out soccer with how things have gone with like rising interest in the United States in soccer. Mm-hmm. But I I don't know. Like I do I do think there is some like the main advantage of the NBA almost above any other sport that I can think of is the players are celebrities. They're the most recognizable. They tend to be the the ones that I mean. There's there's only like what like fourteen of them tops on a team. And five on the floor. Five at on the time. floor at a time. You can see who's on the floor. You can. It's easy to make sense. Like there's storylines and personality and drama to the NBA that it doesn't seem like people have quite as much interest in um, for the other sports. And maybe that's somewhat of an like ignorance from from my perspective. But I feel like I follow, you know, ESPN at least broadly enough to see that like you're not hearing about like the trade deadline in the NFL quite yep. in the same way. Yep. And like, I don't think that's happening with soccer and, and like other sports. Yeah. Um, so he, he brings up three reasons why, and we're going to walk through these, uh, the media rights, which I want to talk at length about, cause I think it's fascinating, a global and growing game, which I want to talk about first, and then a larger and diversified investor base, which we can close off on. Um, I am wearing a Brazil track jacket um, for the the Brazilian national um, soccer team. I spent two years in Brazil in the early 2000s, fell in, and I played soccer in high school, but fell in love. Um, I was there during the 2002 World Cup when Brazil won the World Cup, and it and David Beckham was the star of that World Cup. And guess who David Beckham played for in 2002 as at a club. I have no idea. Manchester United, which happens to be still today my favorite football team or soccer team. It's been the first 10 years was much more fun than the last 10. Um, I, I think as an American, I can speak to the Premier League and soccer um, as a global and growing game, probably better than most Americans. He brings up an interesting point about basketball here, which is the cost of getting and starting to play soccer 
is the reason soccer is what it is. Mm. And I saw this on the on the streets of Brazil every day. Yeah. Kids need a ball. Yeah. And then a little bit of space. Yeah. But um, one of the things that if you meet a Brazilian in Brazil, when they talk to you about the United States, they've been to the United States. Do you want to know the number one thing they always want to talk about? The soccer fields. They cannot believe the soccer fields in the United States. They're like, it's incredible. Hmm. They're all mowed. There's these beautiful like goals and they're big. There's tons of them everywhere. It blows their mind. Hmm. There's nothing like that in Brazil. Yeah. Um, and so they they play football de salon, which is like basically in like like futsal, what we call it. Um, but they get that's why they get really talented with their feet, is they have to play in very tight spaces. Um so it's easy to see how Brazil, Argentina, Uruguay, England, France, Africa, why soccer is the most popular sport in these places because the cost of getting into as a child, soccer is like, do you have a ball? Mm-hmm. Do you have a flat place? You're in and you can play. And that's, and that's, but basketball is not that different. Yeah. And that, he, that is the first thing that he brings up, which is like, this isn't like hockey. Um, where the cost of getting is is crazy. And so he makes the argument that basketball will become a much more growing and popular sport, and the NBA is doing everything that it can, and he uses China as the kind of, I guess, example, where there are 400 million Chinese fans of the NBA, which is more people than live in the United States, and if you think about the, if you're an NBA fan, how many of the players now live internationally? And this, not just the players. Th- is it the last three MVPs? Yeah. Because Giannis won Giannis three years ago. Jokic, yeah. Yeah, so the last three MVPs were out of this country, and Giannis Antetokounmpo and, and Nikola Jokic. Um, the number one pick in this year's draft is French. And he looks like an alien. If you haven't go go look at him. His name is Victor Wembanyama. He's <laughs> I can't. I I I'm the most confused I've ever been as a jazz fan now because of of Victor. So like you're already starting to see, um, maybe this is the impact of the Dream Team in 1992. Maybe it's the impact of the Redeem Team in 2008 at the Beijing Olympics. But it's definitely growing. Yeah, internationally. So. With that kind of framing in place, there is essentially a media rights package that the NBA has in place for $24 billion right now. It is believed that Adam Silver, the commissioner of the NBA, is going after a package of $75 billion. And what what is that, just to like break it down? What is a media package? Well, it's, it's some of one of the things we talk about all the time that's so infuriating. Basically, every local NBA team in their market has a local TV deal. Yeah. And it's one of the reasons Ryan Smith wants to bring baseball or hockey to Utah Mm -hmm. because local TV requires basically two major sports to work really, really well. Mm -hmm. So that's the first. Then there's League Pass, which is like, if I, well, you are the recipient of this. You're a Sacramento Kings fan that lives in Utah. Mm-hmm. You can watch every Kings game on League Pass yep. for 99 bucks a year. Yep. 
And then on top of that, there's international. So like if I set my VPN to New Zealand, like I did last night trying to get stupid League Pass to work, <laughs> it won't show it. It actually will say like, oh, League Pass rights don't apply in this country. Mm. So they're selling basically rights to Sky Sports in in England and Goal TV in Brazil and across, they want $75 billion. And what has changed is, well, the whole media landscape has changed in the last five years. Yeah. And now you have some of the largest companies on planet Earth that are in the mix. And so could Apple get in? Could Netflix get in? Could Amazon get in? Amazon already owns the Premier League rights in England. Um, that's where they live. So it's like, it's not new. They've already been dipping their toe in the water here. And NFL stuff too. That's right. Yeah, that's right. They do. Um, and the NFL has a, a, a package today that pays them about $10 billion a year. The NBA is trying to get eight, which is pretty wild to think about. The way that the NBA works is they split basketball-related income with the players, the NBA teams, 50-50. So at $8 billion a year, that's 275 to $300 million to every team on just media rights alone. The one thing that I don't think people are prepared for, I went to a Phoenix Suns-Utah Jazz game this year, and I watched Devin Booker play. I have a lot of respect. I didn't like Devin Booker, but I really, I actually, he's growing on me. Mm -hmm. When I saw him on the floor, he's made about $300 million in his career. He looks like he's made $300 million in his career. You can see, see it. Like, he looks like a very wealthy person, the way he takes care of himself, the way he's groomed, the way he comports himself, all of those things. Well, what is going to change about the way we think about the business of sports when Devin Booker is worth a billion dollars and is he still an active player? I mean, there's one of those in LeBron James. Yeah. But it could be the top 30 people in the NBA are on that trajectory by the end of their careers. Yep. What's going to change? That's crazy to think about. Well, like, I just think about the amount of, like, impact in that sense that LeBron has and, like, what he can do with it. I mean, he has, like, a whole media empire yeah. at this point. Like, it's I, I don't think he can quite go toe-to-toe, per se, with ESPN all by himself, but he has, like, that level of sway where, like, you know, it, it's clear to me there's stuff going on behind the scenes in terms of how people report on him and how he's treated because of how much money he has, which I think is just like how things work in across any sort of business context. But yeah, if you have 30 people who are all doing that and they all decide to band together on a certain issue, whatever it is, or combine and pool money, or maybe like players start to more and more like own bigger and bigger portions of the team. Like does, does the NBA over time just become like all owned by former players? Like what it is kind of interesting to think about. And maybe the, the scale is all relative, like with, you know, the increased media deals and the increased money the players get, the valuations of the team just keep going up and, you know, it's kind of always relative, but yeah, it, it feels like at least in the short term when there's sort of like a sudden shift, there's a lot of room for, you know, kind of weird things to happen as people adjust to some kind of new normal. Okay, I'm going to throw two names out to you. These are two NBA players. Okay. 
the first thing I want you to tell me is what percentage of the people who listen to our podcast or maybe the American public generally knows who they are. Okay. Okay. And then where you think they rank on the Forbes highest earners list mm. for okay. athletes. Okay. So the first is Max Verstappen. I don't even know who that is. He is the best driver in Formula One. Okay. Okay. He earned, I'm not going to tell you because it's going to give away some of what I want to talk to you about. Okay. The second one is Jimmy Butler. Okay. You know who Jimmy Butler yeah, is. Yeah, yeah. What percentage of the U.S. knows who Jimmy Butler is? Uh, percentage overall, I don't know, probably 10% at least. 10%, so yeah. not many. Yeah. Like what percent would you say knows Lionel Messi or uh, LeBron James? Oh, I mean, LeBron is probably up like at, 90%. Same with Messi or Cristiano Ronaldo or some of the very, 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 very top earners in the world. Yeah, I bet. I bet like, I bet Messi and Ronaldo are like about 50 of all Americans. Maybe that's maybe true for Americans, but yeah. like Cristiano Ronaldo has 500 million followers on Instagram. Yeah. Yep. Um, so mind you, Max Verstappen is the number one driver mm -hmm. in the number one fastest growing sport in the world mm -hmm. in F1 um, because of Drive to Survive, the Netflix series. I'm a recent convert this last year. Where would you rank Jimmy Butler in the NBA, as an NBA player? Uh, this current season, it's a bit of a drop. He's probably like, it's, I don't know, somewhere in the top 50, top 30. Top 30. Yeah. Okay. Where would you think Jimmy Butler ranks on the Forbes highest earners list amongst athletes? Oh. Uh, this is like currently last year, 2022. Oh, last year, okay. Um, amongst athletes, there's all athletes, all athletes. Oh, uh, like 300, I don't know. 300. Okay. So this is what's interesting. Um, Max Verstappen mm -hmm. ranks 26th on this list. Okay. Number one after I went one driver in the world at what's the, what's the number? 48 million. Jimmy Butler ranks 25th, 48 million. I don't think the world is prepared for what is about to happen if this media rights deal changes in the NBA. When you look at the top 50 earners in athletes in the world, 45 of them might be NBA players. That's how drastic the earners are going to be in the NBA. I mean, you're going to have, you're still going to have Lionel Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo and Kylian Mbappe, like the best soccer players in the world because their endorsements make over $100 million a year. Who's at the top of that list? Lionel Messi, $130 okay. million. LeBron James, 121 number two. Cristiano Ronaldo, 115 number three. Neymar, fourth, number These fourth. are their earnings for last year. Last year. Okay, okay. $95 million. Okay. Steph Curry, $93 million. But just, just, just... So it's not like net worth. No, no, this is just their 2022 earnings. Yeah. Um, let me just count. In the top 30 earners today, mm -hmm. um, how many are NBA players? One, two, three. Kevin Durant's three. Giannis, number 10. Number four, Westbrook, five. Harden, six. I mean, we're, I'm going past Aaron Rodgers, Tiger Woods. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm going through all the biggest names in sports. Yeah. Um, Damian Lillard, Clay Thompson, Jimmy Butler, Paul George, Anthony Davis, Kawhi Leonard. I mean, today you're talking about nearly half 
of the top 30 athletes are NBA players. Mm-hmm. It is going to get crazy if they get this new media rights deal done. And I don't think, I just think about my dad. My dad was the very first CFO for the Utah Jazz. When he was here, um, it was before Larry Miller bought the team. Mm-hmm. And I remember it was just 19, this was just after I was born. It was like 1983. And he would, he, it, the NBA was so unpopular. He, the Jazz had just moved to Utah from New Orleans. And he went to the local radio station. It's the early 80s. Said, hey, could you give away some tickets to the Jazz game tonight or tomorrow night? Or Who, who's next on week? the team at this point? Uh, I think right now it is Adrian Dantley. Okay. Is like the, the star. Okay. Um, I don't, I think Ricky Green was on the team. Like, you probably don't know who Ricky Green is. Like, nobody listening on this podcast. So, anyway, it's like, it's early. Yeah. Carmelo gets drafted in 80, 80, 86. Yeah. John Stockton gets drafted in 85. Yeah. And, and Michael Jordan's 84, right? Yeah. Michael's yeah. not in. It's ba- yeah. basically Larry Bird's been around for four years. Yeah. My, uh, Magic Johnson's been around for three years. They, mm-hmm. they really haven't gotten yet yeah. hold. Michael hasn't taken effect. Just do it. Air Jordan, none of that stuff. And the radio station said, no thanks. To free tickets. Hmm. No thanks. It's crazy. Um, he really struggles with how much NBA players make today. Yeah. He really is like, he can't, he can't, I'm like, dad, they're just taking 50% of the, it's just that the NBA, I don't even know what my dad's going to say when, <laughs> when this change happens. And I don't think people are really ready. It's going to be crazy. Yeah. What it what what were the salaries back then? I haven't even looked. Um like I think the top earner was like a million in the whole NBA. Mm-hmm. Wow. Like a million million and a half like yeah. in, in that range. So like inflation adjusted was it was like 4 million or something. Yeah. Yeah. Like but that was like Jabbar. Yeah. That's it. It was like one guy Crazy. that that earned that 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 type of money. And I think my memory serves me. I think there were people in the seventies that were still um, working on sort of like not, not like minimum wage, but it was like or they, or they had other jobs still yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the business of sports is fascinating. So here's the last piece to this that I don't think people are really comprehending yet. And this is tr- I only say this because because of my experience being a Premier League a Premier League soccer fan. Everything in soccer has changed the last 15 years because of one main reason. And that main reason is individuals stopped owning the biggest clubs in the world and sovereign wealth funds started mm-hmm. buying them. So who owns PSG in France and what changed the entire um, thing for Paris Saint-Germain? It was Qatar bought them. Mm-hmm. What changed for Manchester City? Abu Dhabi bought them the United Arab Emirates. What just happened this last year with Newcastle United in the Premier League? Uh, Saudi Arabia bought them. And for the first time, the NBA allowed private equity to purchase in the NBA. And actually, if you think about who owns NBA teams. When was that? Just this last year. Last year, okay. Yeah, is the, the first time they've ever allowed it. And that was to what team? Well, like the Jazz are private are partly owned by private equity now. Got it. Like Ryan raised money as a minority, or like private equity owns. And if you think about what private equity is, they have to go put money in places like big chunks of dollars. Yeah, is very helpful for them. Well, if a franchise is worth four billion, you can sink an enormous number into an NBA franchise. 
and the sovereign wealth funds are trying to diversify diversify away from oil. Mm-hmm. Well, they did it with the Premier League. Why wouldn't they come for the NBA? They're yeah. going to come for the NBA. Yep. And so when you combine all of these things, I think that the business of sports has a very interesting and exciting next 10 to 15 years. The, they, but they got to be careful because I think there's a chance that they turn off a lot of people just with if ticket prices continue to rise. Like, why are we paying so much for tickets when these players are making the money that they're making? Like, why? Like, normal people can't even afford to go to games anymore. That's a complaint you hear from the Premier League, like, audience a lot. Um, it's a fascinating time. Don't, don't you feel like the ticket prices, though, is just, like, supply and demand economics? Like, what, like you know, if enough people care and want to go, like, the prices go up. It's sort of, like, to some degree out of the control of the, the arenas, right? Or yeah. are you just saying the base ticket prices? That base, they... base ticket prices. I see. Um, but in addition to that, it is, you're right in the sense, you know, take a guess as to how many followers on social media Manchester United has. Oh, followers? Uh, I don't know, 50 million? 800 million. That's crazy. So when you think about that number of people being a fan of your team and your stadium holds 75,000 people, yeah, um, the get-in price for United Barcelona, which is coming up this next month, the get-in price, 900 bucks. That's the get-in, like get in the stadium. It's like the Super Bowl. Um, not quite, but pretty close. And so I just wonder as if as the game expands, as basketball becomes, I mean, Today, I think of the 450 players that are in the NBA, there's 120 international players. What happens when that number is 225 and 50% of the NBA players come from outside the United States? Yeah, Pretty wild to think about how stadiums might change, how ticket prices might change, how even the fan and viewing experience might change. And it is, I think, the NBA has a very bright future. Yeah, that's... uh... It does make you wonder, like, are you know, are we going to be old, seventy five, and it's going to be the same type of thing where it's like a luxury to go to one NBA game in your lifetime? I mean, if you have to pay a thousand dollars, like a get in price, kids aren't like, kids aren't getting that's in like the a stadium. Once in a lifetime thing for for most people. Yeah, that uh, now that's like Manchester United Barcelona. Yeah, at Old Trafford, but it's reality. It's just that's yeah. just the truth of what it is. So, um, all right, well, I, I think that's a super interesting topic, um, the business of sports, and maybe we'll touch on this in other episodes based on your feedback, but we appreciate, um, all the listeners, uh, tuning in for another episode of modern commerce, wish you all the best, have a great week, and we will talk to you again soon. See ya.